Hello there. This is Eric Sinrod from Dwayne Morris, bringing you your weekly Tech Law 10, our podcast where the law and information technology intersect. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Jonathan Armstrong of Portery. Jonathan, you're thinking about the tour. What are you talking about? Thanks very much, Eric. And yes, uh, uh, I'm speaking to you from a very warm uh, United Kingdom. And uh, we, I, I've been watching with uh, rapt attention this year's Tour de France. Now, as we speak to you uh, today, we're just about to enter the last mountain stage before the time trial. And Geraint Thomas of uh, Team Sky is in the lead. And what's been striking on some of these mountain stages is the communication between the teams on the road. Now, I used to follow, uh, not literally, but follow uh, on television the Tour de France as a child when I had a really um, a, a great time being on a campsite in France and having uh, an old French guy explain to my brother and I how the Tour de France worked. And it really improved our French, but also our um, passion for road cycling, which I think lapsed uh, some years ago for various reasons. You'll probably guess at them when I give you some names later on. But, uh, but this tour has certainly uh, lived up to expectations, at least so far. Now, where does that fit in with technology? Well, in 1996, as you no doubt know, Eric, the 7-Eleven U.S road cycling team, the uh, mm -hmm. premier, and I think the first professional cycling team in the U.S., was taken over by a new sponsor. For 10 points, would you like to guess who, Eric? Um, U.S. Postal Service? Well, you, you're there. You're just, you, you're just slightly wrong. First of all, uh, it was taken over by Motorola, and Motorola ah. took over in 1996. And um, they uh, wanted to demonstrate their ability to use effectively mini cell phones for the riders to communicate back with the team car. Now, back in the day, it was only the team leader who had an earpiece and the ability to communicate. But then gradually, more people on the team started to get earpieces and uh, traditionally, teams had always communicated with their, with their uh, coaches, their management, their uh, director sportif, by sending one of the team back to the end of the uh, peloton, to the team cars, to talk to their team director through the window of the car that he was following in. And Motorola sort of revolutionized the sport in a way in the the teams were then able to take instructions from the director sportif and they could get all sorts of information um so for example the gap between them and rivals that they were watching out for in the race traditionally that had been done by blackboards on the back of motorbikes and if you missed the blackboard then you'd had it there was there was no way of getting information unless somebody by the roadside shouted that out to you so Motorola re uh, revolutionized the sport, and why you were partly right is that then uh, one of Motorola's riders went to U.S. Postal Service. Hmm. He, uh, he went by the name of Lance Armstrong, so whatever exactly. happened to him.
I'll tell you about him in a moment. Go ahead. Fabulous. So he went to U.S. Postal Service, and by uh, 2002, all of the pro teams in the uh, Tour de France were using this uh, radio cell phone technology to, uh, to communicate. And, um, and that's been a key part, I think, of the uh, last mountain stage, which was very tricky, uh, a, a, different, um, a different type of finish than the, than the tour had had before, much narrower. And you could see that there was communication going on all of the time. Chris Froome had dropped to the back of, uh, of the group with all the main riders and was able to feed information to Grant Thomas, who was at the head of that group, on how much his rivals were suffering. And equally, they were able to dictate uh, to their domestiques, the, the riders who set the pace for them in those stages of the race, whether to go faster or slower. So there was really extensive uh, communication between the team and no more having to go up and down the pack and talk to the car at the back to get information. Obviously, it makes the race safer as well because you can report uh, incidents, you can report concerns in the road. For example, it's been used by riders to say that uh, on certain mountain stages, the fans were not giving enough room for the riders and the motorbikes and all the entourage. Uh, and, um, and, and at the same time, we've seen the use of technology I think revolutionize other sports as well. I was at the cricket last night, the 2020 mm. cricket, and now it's ubiquitous really to use technology to review umpiring decisions. So we had them last night, for example, where uh, to the naked eye, somebody looked like they'd got back into the, into the correct zone. I'm simplifying for American audience, uh, having uh, completed a run. Uh, to the naked eye, he looked in, camp, uh, the, the replay showed he was out. And in test cricket particularly, there's very sophisticated technology around snickometers, for example, that can tell whether the bat touched the ball and, uh, and technology that can work out whether the wickets would have been hit. In tennis, of course, we have Hawkeye that can review decisions as to whether the ball was in or out. And in the <laughs> World Cup, we, we had the... Uh, the debut of uh, uh, VARs, so, so assistant referees sat in uh, a control room in Moscow in this case who were determining aspects uh, of the game, including rightly awarding uh, a, a penalty that uh, uh, helped Harry Kane get the golden boot when he was fouled in the box. So, uh, the, so my point being that technology has had a huge aspect uh, on how we watch sport, but also how sport happens. And sometimes I think it passes us by. Sometimes we think that football and cricket and cycling and tennis are the same as they ever have been. But that just doesn't seem to be the case with a lot of the technology that's there, often discreetly. And so I guess my other question is, I mean, almost like a philosophical one, is that right? We have mm -hmm. materially changed the way in which the Tour de France runs. As I say, sometimes good for safety reasons. But it's a different race now. The, team, the decisions are made more collectively rather than allowing for the instinct of one player. 
You could argue that tennis is a slower game as people go for reviews. You could argue that cricket is a different game because the number of reviews are limited and you have to think tactically when you're going to review uh, uh, decisions depending on the way in which the game is going and, and, and which team is in the upper hand at a particular time. So slightly esoteric thoughts, uh, Eric, but I thought it was just a different topic to discuss and as ever, really interested in your views. Yeah, there's so much that can be said. I'll try to be succinct, but you're right. I mean, we, you know, we still have the same human bodies we had a couple hundred years ago, but we sort of keep trying to push the boundaries and limits of human capacity in sport through assistance, if you will, you know, better track shoes, better tracks, better swimsuits, different conditions in swimming pools, um, and records keep getting broken. Uh, we, you know, in terms of recruiting players, for example, to baseball teams, we look at all sorts of statistics, and are you really just relying sort of on the gut sense of who you think will actually develop into the best player, or is it really just one team's algorithms <laughs> against another team's algorithms? Um, if I didn't say so, we have instant replay in American football here. You're quite right. As we saw Wimbledon, you know, there could be a challenge to a call of whether the ball's in or out, and then we would sort of see the little micro view in terms of where exactly the ball hit. And, you know, one can ask the question, you know, is this really a good thing? Um, you know, when rec and for example, when records get broken, can we really compare you know, one track time or swim time, you know, versus one from 50 years ago when conditions were quite, were quite different. And you mentioned Lance Armstrong, and that's why for the U.S. Postal Service, of course, here, we, you know, we in the States remember Lance for having won the Tour de France seven years in a row. There were allegations and accusations that he was using performance-enhancing <clears throat> drugs. He vigorously denied this. He actually filed lawsuits against his accusers. He was adamant. And then ultimately, um, when the evidence was relatively clear, he did admit that he used EPO, which was uh, a performance-enhancing substance, which was for a long time undetectable. Um, and then even when it became detectable, it clears out of your system within four to six hours. So if you do the math right and you time when you're tested properly, um, you can avoid detection. There were also blood transfusions being used by people on the tour. For example, they would save some blood uh, that they had, had drawn prior to taking a performance-enhancing drug, and then they'd have the test, and then later they'd infuse that blood back into their system. Um, and that blood actually, well, anyway, I can go into much more detail. Um, and I listened to a podcast of Lance Armstrong just yesterday. So your timing is really? very interesting. Yeah. And... Um, you know, he has become much more contrite, and he has actually, through settlements and other means, paid $111 million to uh, those who believed they were harmed by uh, his actions. Of course, he was stripped of all of his Tour de France titles. Uh, he was banned for life from ever participating in bike racing again, and he was obviously uh, taken away from the leadership and any involvement in his uh, live strong a cancer foundation that he founded, um, and he pretty much became a pariah for a while, but he's gone around the world uh, to meet with those who felt like he did them wrong to say, I get it, I'm really sorry, but by the same token, he says he felt like he had no choice because 
you know, is him versus about 199 other racers on the tour, and everyone was doing it. So the playing field was changed. And he was asked the question in this podcast, do you think you would have won any of those seven Tour de France titles if you had not taken EPO? And he said, 0% chance, because all of my competitors were doing it. Um, and, you know, he pointed to other instances where there's performance-enhancing means that are not deemed illegal, so why was he singled out? Or even here in the United States, we've had some baseball players who are found to have used steroids, and they were simply suspended for one year of participation in sport. Why was he treated differently? And he believes he was treated differently because not only was he an athlete, but he had this cancer foundation. Um, and so I guess the question, I, I think you posed it in one way, and maybe I can cast it a different way. Um, you know, what is fair game and what's not? Um, you know, at what point do we say no longer are you the human being participating in sport, but instead you're so enhanced that this just is not fair competition. I don't know the answer to that question. Do you have any further thoughts, Jonathan? I know we've probably gone past our 10, uh, but how do we round this out? Well, I think we can't solve it in 10 or 20. I think it <laughs> is, um, there's all sorts of debates, aren't there, around the use of drugs in sport. And, and of course, the technology debate is uh, front and center in things like the Paralympics where prosthetic limbs are used and some are meant to be better than others mm -hmm. and so on. I mean, it's amazing. My, uh, my, my daughters are, are cops of a rowing team, uh, and admittedly uh, she's on the, um, uh, the Cambridge University uh, squad. But, um, so admittedly that's, that's pretty high level, but still amateurs. But the way in which sports at, at all levels are professionalized and... Uh, and the pressure to get what what the director of, uh, uh, of Team Sky has called marginal gains each time is uh, is incredible, isn't it? But, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think they're amazing issues, but probably ones that we're not going to solve in one podcast alone. But he, Lance Armstrong has five children. But one of his sons is a football player at a well-known university called Rice University, but Lance actually hosts a podcast. I believe it's called The Forward. And in that podcast, he interviews people who uh, earlier in life have fallen from grace, uh, whether they're athletes or politicians or otherwise. And he, and he talks to them about, you know, what caused them to sort of go off the tracks and, you know, how they're now redeeming themselves. It's, it's a very interesting podcast. It hadn't occurred to me to even discuss it today, but um, here we are. I should point out, since you're plugging Lance Armstrong, that he's no relation, and I'm, I'm uh, as Lance, willing to take a blood test to prove it. <laughs> I'm not plugging him. I'm just describing him. But that hadn't even occurred to me. Lance and Jonathan Armstrong, we should have a race between the two of you on your bicycle. Uh, anyhow, all right, well, this has been your tour to, your tour to Tech Law 10. Uh, I'm Eric Sinrod at Dwayne Morris. My email address is ejsinrod at DwayneMorris.com. You can find us on the mutual social media outlets. I can assure you that Jonathan, neither Jonathan nor I have used any performance-enhancing substances or technology other than that, which brings me to this podcast. I turn it back to Jonathan to finish this out. Thanks very much. I'll say uh, Alice Sinrod. And uh, I'm Jonathan.Armstrong at CaudryCompliance.com. We'd appreciate any views you might have on um, on our LinkedIn uh, pages. It's a topic we might 
return to in future. Obviously, uh, we wish uh, bon voyage to those who've got a couple of days left of the gruelling Tour de France, and we'll speak to you again when all of that's over. Thanks for listening. Cheers. 